Let's please turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 10. We're continuing going through the book of Genesis verse by verse. Because Genesis is so long and because it's a narrative, in other words, it's mostly story format, portion of Scripture, you don't necessarily park on every single verse for you know weeks at a time. You might do that more in a book like Romans, which is a letter, and every single word is so essential to the logic of the argument that you need to make sure that you understand everything in its flow and context. And that's not not true for a portion of Scripture like Genesis. Every word's inspired. Every word is authoritative and therefore important for our faith and practice. But because of the nature of the literature, the nature of the genre, it is different. It's story format. And so as you read these stories, the point that you are to take away is the point of the story. And really anybody who reads a story can come away with those conclusions. So far what we've seen is that our God is a powerful and even more so a very gracious creator. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 declare that with great clarity. Our God is full of power, but our God is full of grace. And he makes his image bearers, his people, to dwell in a place which is effusively, that means abundantly, gracious. So we get to experience God in a place that we can really enjoy. That's what Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are about. Of course, in chapter 3, the world falls apart because Adam and Eve rebel and turn away from God. The essence of their sin is pride or autonomy. They wanted to live on their own. This was the temptation of the serpent, who we know to be Satan, who came into the garden and tempted them with the idea that they could be happier if they lived self-sufficiently. Of course, there were tragic consequences for this. God made them perfectly happy and holy. That's what chapters 1 and 2 are about. But they jettisoned this. They abandoned it. They, they relinquished it. They gave it up for something that was, was less satisfying. In fact, something that would destroy them. And then what you see really after that, from chapter 4 onward, is the devolution of mankind. Now, I'm not talking about evolution in any sort of technical sense here. I just mean that man devolves and degenerates into worse and worse things. So God creates mankind directly, and a world that he created directly. And he gave them one law, but they broke that law. And ever since, humanity has been bent toward their own way, toward rebellion, toward autonomy. Now, certainly along the way, there were some bright spots. People like Abel, his brother Seth. Seth's line in Genesis chapter 5, to some degree, demonstrates righteousness for us. And even though a man like Noah, and at least a couple of his sons in Genesis chapter 6 through 9, sort of shine brightly in righteousness, it's in the midst of great darkness which is why God punishes the world with the great deluge, the great flood. And as we saw in Genesis chapter 6, every intention of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. So God seals Noah and his family up in a boat and preserves them for a bit over a year. When they come out of the boat, you think, okay, it's a fresh start. God sort of decreates with the flood... It's very much like the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. The earth is covered in waters and it's, it's chaotic, it's uninhabitable. But again, dries the waters up, he sort of recreates and he gives humanity a second chance. 
But very quickly, by the end of Genesis chapter 9, we find more sin. Noah's son Ham shames his father. I think it might be wise for us to just park there for a moment. At the end of Genesis chapter 9, you probably know the story. We covered it a couple of weeks ago. Ham, Noah's son, finds his father to be naked. Noah had gotten drunk. Of course, this is no commendation on drunkenness, nor is it a prohibition on drinking alcohol. So somewhere in the tension of that, we have to live. It's not wrong to drink alcohol, according to this text, but it is wrong to abuse it. And Noah shamed himself. Back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve were found to be sinful, what did God do? He didn't come and jeer them. He didn't come and shame them. He did the opposite. He covered them in their shame. If you remember, he slayed an animal there, took the skins of that animal, and covered them. He covered their shame. And frankly, the rest of the Bible is the unfolding of God's plan of covering those who have been shamed. You might read the account of Ham shaming his father and think, well, it's not a big deal. He was just being a smart aleck. He he had a momentary lapse of respect. But if you notice Noah's response to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, which is Ham's son. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So basically he says, this is a really big deal. And I don't just think it's because he's coming out of his sinful drunken stupor. I think it's because of the essence of what Ham was doing. This may speak to a deeper character flaw in Ham. God covers the shame of sinful people. And that should be what God's people do. It should be your delight whenever you find your brother, sister, husband, wife, children in a sinful state that rather than spreading the news of that sin... Rather than rubbing that sin in, rather than pointing to the reality of that sin, that what you do is you cover that sin. Now, you can't do that on your own. Jesus is the one who alone can cover sin. But you can remind your brother, sister, spouse, or child that they have been covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ if they have indeed trusted him. When you find one to have been overtaken in a fault, as Paul says, In Galatians chapter 6, you are to restore that person in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself lest you too be tempted toward those kinds of sins. So a person who understands God, a person who wants to worship God, will emulate God. Our God is a God who forgives and covers shame. Ham did the opposite. And therefore, that explains Noah's outrage at what Ham had done. And of course, by way of contrast, his other two sons, Shem and Japheth, cover their father. They won't even look at his nakedness. They walk backwards and cover him with a garment. They acted like God in that moment. What we find in Genesis chapter 10 is some of the unfolding of what happened here. You might look at what's going on here in verse 25 of Genesis chapter 9 and say, why is it that Noah not only talks about Ham, but he talks about Cain and his kid? Well, it seems to be that either Noah already knew what Canaan was like, 
because maybe Ham already had these character flaws, or perhaps prophetically he looked forward, or perhaps he just knew that if this boy was going to be under the influence of this man, if his grandson was going to be under the influence of his son, that they perhaps would inevitably follow their father's pattern. We find this, of course, tragically to be so true. That explains what we found in Genesis chapter 4. When Cain fell, look what happened to his line. As God allowed humanity to increase on the earth, look what happened by Genesis chapter 6. Man keeps devolving and degenerating. We follow the patterns of our fathers, so to speak. But as we will see a small glimpse of in this text, there is yet hope. We will rehearse similar kinds of things next week in Genesis chapter 11, but the hope shines a bit brighter. But there is a glimmer of hope here in Genesis chapter 10 that I will point out at the end. My mother's mother died on Wednesday morning. She was a wonderful lady. She would have turned 100 this December on on uh, Pearl Harbor Day. So she was 99. I don't know exactly when my grandmother was converted. I think my grandfather, her husband, was around 24. Right after he was converted, he started teaching Sunday school, and then he ended up pastoring churches for 55 years. He was an amazing man. He lived down in southwestern Indiana in a place you would never get to unless you had to go through there. It's down on the Ohio River right across from Kentucky. They're a pretty part of the country, but, but very rural. No one, no one knows anybody there unless you're from there. Um, my grandfather raised his two daughters and son who went off and uh, chose spouses and have raised children, many of which now are serving God in one way or another, a lot of them in vocational ministry. And I don't say that in any way to, to point to some sort of manufactured righteousness in my family. Hopefully you know me well enough to know that. That's not what I'm saying. But, but my grandfather, when converted, the family tree changed. A lot of his family never followed God, but whenever my grandfather was converted, everything changed. And, and now, I think there's 27 great-grandchildren, now the whole family tree has changed. It was interesting to be with my cousins yesterday, many of which I'd never seen in forever, um, to just talk about old stories and and reminisce about what God had done. My my grandmother was not one who smiled much. She was a hardworking, Depression-era, World War II-era lady. Uh, You you knew she loved you because at birthday time you got a card with 10 bucks in it. It never changed. It was always 10 bucks. There was never any adjustment for inflation. But, you know, when you're a kid, 10 bucks is nice. Um, You got a Christmas present, and we'd see her occasionally. She wasn't much of a hugger. She wasn't much of an affirmer, but you knew she loved you. You knew that that she cared for you. And as I sat around with my cousins and my aunts and uncles and my parents and so forth yesterday and just saw what God did through that godly lady, it reminded me of what I knew I was going to be preaching today. This is a genealogy we're going to read in just a moment. And as I look back at my genealogy, there's a lot of darkness on both sides. There's a whole lot of sin on both sides. But I saw God on both sides of my family, and both of my grandfathers, my maternal grandfather, that was his wife that died this week, and then my paternal grandfather, both of those men were converted at, at an older age. And both of them, after that time, were, were radically transformed. And then our, our whole family tree changed because of that. My paternal grandfather was orphaned at age six and was raised by his maternal, grandpa- uh, maternal grandparents. He told, of, he told us when I was little that he was so poor when he was little 
that he would hide behind the trees when cars would drive by because he was so ashamed of the rags that he wore. He was kind of a rough guy. He drank too much. And then some point along the way, I think he was probably in his early 30s, there was a Methodist revival. An evangelist was in town, and he was converted. And my family was radically transformed during that time. And so I, I'm, I stand in the stead of, of, of great godliness. But it's all because of grace. And that's what I want us to see over the next couple of weeks as we, as we read the story of God's unfolding plan of redemption. And that's what I, I want to make sure that you're seeing as we move through this, is that, is that God's plan of redemption is unfolding. There's a whole lot of darkness in the mix, which explains the need for redemption. We're going to talk a lot about sin over the next couple of weeks, just like we have over the past several weeks. That's not very fun. Certainly not very popular in American evangelicalism anymore, but it's just reality. And I've said to you many times that there's no way that we will ever be able to appreciate the gospel, the need for it, and how much we must have it if we're going to have any hope if we can't understand the darkness. So you're going to have to bear with me because I'm just going to follow the course of the scriptures now for the next several weeks. And you're going to have to bear with me. We're going to have to bear with each other as we just sort of peer into the darkness a little bit. And Genesis chapter 10 is one of those chapters, not at first glance, not at first glance. It's just a family tree, a genealogy at first glance. But I'm going to hopefully show you today that there's a lot of darkness here. But again, just like God has shown in my own family, there is sometimes these injections of hope which promise us that God is carrying his plan forward. So let's read Genesis chapter 10. You're going to have to believe along with me that this is not a throwaway chapter. You know what it's like sometimes whenever you do your Bible reading, you come to those genealogy passages and you just, you just chuck them. You, know, you try to read through them really quick. We're not going to do that today, okay? Let's read carefully and believe with faith that even this portion of Scripture is inspired and is useful for our faith. Genesis 10 verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham and Japheth, sons were born to them after the flood. Sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Teras. Sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphoth, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodonim. From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. So that's Japheth's side. These are basically the people that inhabited the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrom. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. These are not words of affirmation. The beginning of his kingdom was with Babel, Erek, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. This is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Neftuhim, Pathrusim, Kesluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites. The Arvidites, the Zimmerites, the Hamathites, afterward the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza. 
and the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboam as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So most of the Canaanite peoples, those people who have become the enemies of Israel, as well as the Egyptians, North Africans, these are the sons of Ham. To Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. Sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Iram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mosh. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzzel, Dilda, Obel, Abmael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they live extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So Shem's family were the Arab people, the Semitic people. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is God's word. I told you we are not going to skip anything as we go through Genesis, and we're going to read it all. So, again, sometimes we come to a passage like this, and we're like, we just need to chuck that. Remember after the, Sarah, after the graveside service yesterday, my brother was on his phone updating things on Ancestry.com because he's a big family tree genealogy nut. And so he's traced both sides of our family, maternal and paternal, way back. You can go way back and find out about our family. And it's interesting when you go to these old graveyards, you, you learn because you can read gravestones and you can update things. My, my mother's daughter, my mother's, let me speak clearly, my mother's sister was born, I think, five or six years before her. She died, I think, at 13 months of diphtheria. You know, that probably wouldn't happen in America now. And her little gravestone is next to my grandfather and grandmother. And then you can go around the cemetery and see other little parts of the family tree. And that's what's being spoken of here, but in a much grander sense. We don't know necessarily all the time period of this. It was a long time ago, and certainly people are skipped in this, but the highlights are picked out. As we move into chapter 11 next week, chapter 11 seems to happen sort of in the context of chapter 10. We know that because this man named Peleg is spoken of as the one whose name means division, which is probably what's being referred to in Genesis chapter 11, the division of the earth. We know in Genesis chapter 10 they have different languages, which didn't seem to happen until after Genesis 11. So Genesis 11 sort of fits into Genesis chapter 10. Why is all this important? Well, it's important because of what Noah had just spoken of at the end of chapter 9. Ham is going to be cursed for his sin, for his pride, for his wickedness, for his disdain, for his father. But Shem is going to be blessed. But there's a lot more said about Ham's line here in Genesis chapter 10 than Shem's line. We will come back to Shem's line next week at the end of Genesis chapter 11. And then really the rest of the story of the Old Testament is about Shem's line. Because through Shem the blessing will come. Well, what blessing? Well, the blessing that God promised back in Genesis 3.15, that a seed of the woman would come and bless the world. It wasn't Cain, it wasn't Abel, it wasn't Seth, it wasn't Noah, 
It wouldn't be Ham, it wouldn't be Japheth, and we will learn it wouldn't be Shem himself, but he would come through Shem's line, the Semitic people. The Jews would come through that line, Abram being the father of the Jews. We will learn about him by the end of chapter 11. And then God unfolds his plan to redeem not just the Jewish people, but all of humanity through the seed that would come through Abraham's line. Well, Abraham came from Shem. Moses, who wrote... Genesis was writing to a people who needed to understand their world. They needed to understand where they came from, how God kept his promises not to cut the line off. As we look at our own family trees, though we all can find darkness in the roots of those trees, there are, for most of us, bright shining lights. And that's true for the people of Israel. They needed to know where they came from and how God had kept his promises. But they also needed to understand, why were things so dark? So first of all today, and we're going to be quick today, humanity is tragically bent toward rebellion. That's really mostly what we're seeing in Genesis chapter 10. We're going to see it again next week in more distinct detail. But just broadly today, what Genesis chapter 10 tells us is that humanity is tragically bent toward rebellion. Now, there's one man who's really picked out and spoken of in any detail in Genesis chapter 10, and his name is Nimrod. Nimrod is responsible for Babel, Babylon, Nineveh, and this land of Shinar, from which the Tower of Babel will come. In fact, Nimrod's family tree is mostly made up of those who will rebel from God, just like Noah said they would. They would follow the pattern of their fathers and uncles and aunts. It was was a degenerating family tree. Why did Israel need to hear this? Why did Moses write this down? Why did he go into detail about this? Well, think about where Israel came from. Think about where they were when they met Moses, the one who wrote this down. They were in Egypt. Egypt had enslaved Israel. Well, as we know, Egypt was a son of Ham. And like his brother Canaan, evil things came from Ham's line. So the Egyptians enslaved Israel. When Israel came out of Egypt after their enslavement, where were they going to go? They were going to go into the land of Canaan. For the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, and so forth, as we see down in verses 15 and following are. What will they do? They will fight the people of Israel. They will corrupt the people of Israel. That is why God told Israel to wipe them out when they came into Canaan, both to punish the Canaanites for their rampant sinfulness, perhaps even worse than the sinfulness of the Egyptians, but also because he didn't want the sinfulness of the Canaanites to infect the Jewish people. In the late 8th century B.C., those from Assyria, the Ninevites, they would come in and they would take away the land and the very people of the northern kingdom of Israel. By the late 7th century, Babylon would come along and they would do the same to the southern kingdom. So why did Israel need Genesis chapter 10? Why did Moses put it in there? Because they needed to know why things were the way they were. 
They needed to understand why so many people around them treated them so poorly. And this takes us back to Ham for just a moment. And again, it's not easy at first glance to understand the severity of Ham's sin. But essentially what's going on here at the end of Genesis chapter 9 is Ham rejects the gospel. Now Moses does not say that definitively, but that's what he's doing here. Through the gospel, we are reminded that God covers shame. Ham did the opposite. He turned away from grace and tried to establish his own righteousness. He shamed his father to make himself look good. I mean, at a very basic level, that's what happens when we make fun of somebody, right? We put them down to make ourselves look better. But Ham wasn't just doing some sort of flippant thing here. There was evil in his heart, which, of course, I think helps us to understand why Noah reacted so vehemently against him. And then what happened to Ham's line? Ham's line rejected grace. So again, let's put all this together. In Genesis chapter 3, what is the only hope for God's people? They've sinned. They've rebelled against God. They know they're naked now. They're under his wrath. What's, What's their only hope? Their only hope is that God will stoop to them and rather than crushing them like they deserve, will cover their shame and give them redemption. That's at the heart of the promise of Genesis 3.15 to send a Redeemer. That's their only hope. And thereafter, those who hoped in God received grace. But by and large, most didn't. Most rejected grace. And Ham's line, perhaps, is the epitome of this. They reject grace. And when you reject grace, what you're doing is you're establishing your own righteousness. When you try to establish your own righteousness, you will persist in your autonomous rebellion and everything goes bad. This is a good word for us on Father's Day. Family trees can change. I know enough of your stories to know that you're the first convert in your family. And as you look at your family tree, you think, how in the world did God rescue me out of that? But you know from the way God has transformed you that you want your family tree to be different going forward. Some of you, conversely, come from a line of great righteousness, and you rejoice in that. Wherever you find yourself today... We have to move forward with the responsibility as fathers that we will point our children to Christ. We will point our children to the one who alone can cover their shame. We will tell our children in no uncertain terms, though of course kindly and gently, but certainly with repetition, that their only hope is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that they will have the tendency, they will be bent toward trying to establish their own righteousness. They will seek to curry favor with God through their works. They will seek to establish how great they are by the strength of their hands. And when you do that, you reject God's rule and you reject God's grace and things will inevitably devolve and go bad. And then not only will you be a sinner who rests under the wrath of God, Perhaps you will inevitably affect all those who come after you. So you see, 
Every decision you make not only affects you in the present sense, but affects all of those who come after. So it's a big deal how you live now. For those of you who are a little younger, maybe teenagers or preteens, and you're listening today, this is a reason why your mom and dad care so much about how you live now. And as a church, we love you so much, and we want you to choose righteousness now. We want you to rest in Jesus now. He's your only hope. So dads and moms, and of course, because today is Father's Day, dads especially, though we want you to be strong, though we want you to be servants, though we want you to lay your lives down, mostly what we want you to do is just to be desperate for your Savior. That's what we want. And I believe that as you are desperate for Jesus and you pattern this with your lives and speak of it with your lips, God's Spirit will be gracious to teach your children the same. Wouldn't it be great if God would be faithful to allow us to raise another generation of children who were equally desperate for Jesus? Ham wasn't. And his line suffered the consequences. And frankly, Israel suffered the consequences, which is again why Moses wrote, Israel needed to be able to understand why things were so broken around them. If Genesis chapters 8 and 9 are sort of a new chance, a recreation, you might think there's a chance that righteousness will persist. Before the flood, unrighteousness persisted. It won out seemingly. But then God came and said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to judge this. You might think, well, humanity will get its act together. Noah will set it right. But that's not the case. You see, humanity, even Noah's family, was tragically bent toward rebellion. And we see the the outliving of that in Genesis chapter 10. So it helped Israel explain why things were the way they were around them. And it also really helped Israel to explain why they were that way themselves. The rest of the Old Testament is not primarily a record of how great Israel was. It's primarily a record of the opposite. You see, they really weren't that different than their neighbors. Yes, they had come from Shem, but they really weren't that different from their great-great-great-great-great-uncle or whatever, Ham. They were a lot like him. And this helps us today. It helps us explain why the world is like it is. No matter which tribe or ethnicity you've come from, all of humanity is built toward rebellion. This helps us understand how we should view those outside the church, and by that I mean those who have not trusted Christ. We shouldn't be surprised. I think we should be frustrated. It's not wrong to be angry at sin. It's certainly not wrong to talk about sin, as we're talking about today. It's not wrong to be frustrated at sin and even angry at it. I don't think that's the only emotion that we should have, though. I think we should have pity. Our Lord who promised redemption, our Lord who promised to cover shame, looks great when that shame is covered. And if we want our Lord to look great, we will take the message of the gospel that shame can be covered, that sin can be forgiven. Because when we speak of God's love and we speak the gospel, we make our God look great. So primarily we tell people they are sinners and there is an opportunity for forgiveness from sin because it makes our God look great. That's why he made the world and that's why he's rescued it. But just as fellow image bearers, we love those around us. We should. 
So if the primary reason for sharing the good news is honoring our Lord, a secondary but very important reason is we care about those around us. We have pity for them. And frankly, if it weren't for God intervening in our family story, we would be the same. We'd be just like Ham's family. Especially those of you who are converted as adults, you can look back not that long ago and you can say, I remember. And it's a miracle that I'm sitting here today. Which means that we can't become smug. We can't become prideful. And we certainly shouldn't hide our lamp under a basket. Because people desperately need the truth. You must begin with an understanding that people are sinful. No one will ever understand their need for a shame covering, which is what Jesus provides, if they don't understand that they are sinners. So when it really comes down to it, we must speak of sin. We have to. If we don't speak of sin, we'll never appreciate God for who he is. If we take sin lightly, what we're really declaring is we take God lightly. Because God hates sin. You can't come out of Genesis chapter 6 and 7 with any other conclusion, but God hates sin. And if we diminish sin, if we soft sell it, if we don't talk about it and understand it, we take God lightly. And that's the greatest sin of all. Likewise, if we don't talk about sin and understand it, we'll never help people understand the need for the gospel. So you see how theology is interconnected? If we're going to understand the doctrine of God, we must understand the doctrine of sin. If we're going to understand the doctrine of salvation, we must understand the doctrine of sin. It may not be pleasant to talk about or to consider, but it's reality. It helps us have something to say to those out there who desperately need the good news. Now certainly we should speak kindly, We should speak humbly. And we should include ourselves in the conversation. If it weren't for God's intervening in our story, in our genealogy, in our family tree, we'd be just there with them. And frankly, even still, we do a lot of the same things that they do. The difference is, we don't find forgiveness through sort of like self-recrimination, through trying to clean our act up. The difference is, perhaps ultimately between us and an unsaved, an unjustified person, is that we run to Jesus, our righteous advocate, whenever we sin. He alone is our confidence, which is why we can admit our sin. This is why in your marriages you don't have to be defensive. It's why you should teach your children not to be defensive. It's why whenever a brother or sister points out a sin, you can own it. So yes, sinful people, outsiders, unbelievers need to understand the doctrine of sin, but so do you. Because connected to that is the promise that Jesus has covered it. And if you've trusted him, if you're resting in him today, you can deal with your sin because Jesus already has. So our evangelism is enhanced as we understand the doctrine of sin. But so is our own understanding of our growth in Christ-likeness. Because we don't remedy our sin problem. Jesus has done that. 
So as you read the account of Ham's line, which is the bulk of this chapter, you find primarily just a lot of sadness. Some of the ramifications would not be spelled out for generations to come, but it was tragic nonetheless. But as you look at Shem's line, and not much is said about Shem's line here, we'll see more next week, there is a little bit of hope. There's a guy named Eber in verse 25. He has two kids. One is Joktan, and mostly Joktan is mentioned here at the end of chapter 10. Joktan's line would not be the one through whom the promise would come. It would come through Peleg's line, and we'll see that more next week. In fact, if you look in Luke chapter 3 in the genealogy of Jesus our Savior, Peleg's name is mentioned. Why? Because God is choosing sovereignly and graciously to not allow everyone to go bad. That's kind of the basic message here. Almost everyone in Genesis chapter 10 goes bad. But every once in a while, God intervenes and he does something to bring about his promise, his unbreakable promise. So I say to you, humanity is tragically bent toward rebellion, but God always keeps his promises. That doesn't shine too brightly, too clearly here in Genesis chapter 10. But I'm just telling you as the story unfolds, though primarily we see lots of tragedy so far, there is a little bit of hope. And we'll see more of that next week. So what's your story like? Again, perhaps you come from a line that is mostly marked by righteousness and godliness, and I'm grateful for that. You know what it's like sometimes whenever you hear somebody give their testimony and it's full of stories of you know, horrible rebellion and then God intervened when they were like 30 and everything changed. Those are amazing testimonies, uh, and, I, and I love them. And sometimes when I hear those testimonies, I, I look and I'm like, mine's so boring. Like I was converted around a campfire in Colorado when I was seven while my family was singing hymns. I mean, that's not, that doesn't seem that you know, amazing. But, but it is because even a couple generations ago, my family was bent toward destruction as well. So whether you come from a line of seeming righteousness or lack thereof, we look into God's word and we realize that apart from grace, we're all bent toward rebellion and therefore we are headed for destruction. But God keeps his promises. He did it a long time ago and he continues to do it today. So I say to you, understand yourself. Understand your heart well. As you look into this text, you find that left to yourself, you will go wrong quickly, tragically, deeply. Because God keeps his promises, you can trust him. He will help you. He will help you endure. And you have something to say now. So take this message to the world around you. Encourage your fellow brothers and sisters in the faith with the hope that God does keep his promises, his faithful promises to his children. But you have also something to say to those who are outside, who are lost in darkness and don't even know it. Don't be mean. Don't be caustic. Don't be triumphalistic that you have somehow attained unto righteousness, but just be honest. Speak the truth. And then remind them that there is a provision of one who has come to cover shame and guilt. His name is Jesus. And if people will rest in him, like you have, I hope, that there is hope for them as well. So this story is a story of great tragedy, but it is also a story of God unfolding his promises of gracious provision. 
And may God be faithful to teach us these things and cause us to rest in his grace.